So the last time I did Sunday school, I talked on the, the doctrine of sanctification and kind of what the confession <clears throat> talked about in that topic. And as I was deciding this, as I was reading all the testimonies that kept coming in and even just remembering to old testimonies, one of the things that kept jumping up to me is just how many people in our congregation, and there was just a key word that kept jumping out at me, and it was legalism. And it just kept popping up. So, so how many people in this room, for instance, coming from a background, have, have dealt with legalism or works-based salvation or something being taught to you? Yeah, there's quite a number of people that have dealt with this. So what I thought would be a really good topic, kind of piggybacking off sanctification, is talking about the topic of good works. So when we hear the, the phrase good works, sometimes works, it, it, can, it can kind of, I don't want to use the term, but it can kind of trigger us. It can kind of make us cringe a little bit because we think of works, so we, ha- we have multiple people in our congregation that come from a place where works-based salvation was a very real thing they dealt with or they had a false understanding of good works. Um, and so my, my hope is that we can kind of go through what the confession says on the topic of good works. That way we can have a healthy understanding that it is something in the Bible. We, we, we like to talk about this as when, when we talk about Calvinism, we like to say, well, it says in the Bible, it talks about predestination. we got to deal with it. The same thing is about good works. Yes, Nathan. Yes. So, yeah, very good point. So the confession I'm going to talk about, so uh, the 1689 confession, the London Baptist confession, I sent a link in the WhatsApp church group for the chapter. Um, yeah, so I sent that. If you don't have your own copy, the 1689 confession is the confession that one of our, our church stands to. And so we're going to be looking through the chapter 16 on good works. So if you don't have a copy, I did send a link. It's free online that you can see it. There's an updated one that Founders Ministries did, uh, updated English. So it's a little bit easier to understand. But we'll kind of, I'm going to use that as kind of our outline and how to walk through this. Because like I said, I want everyone to make sure that good works is in the scriptures. It's something we have to deal with, but we also have to have a healthy understanding because it's so easy to get sidetracked and go into false territory. A quote that I read by James Montgomery Boyce when it comes to good works, I thought this was very convicting for myself. He said, we need good theology. We need prayer, Bible study, and other elements of a healthy Christian life and ministry. We must establish and support effective social action programs, but these do not replace being doers of good works individually. Apart from the life and ministry of Jesus himself, Christians are to be the best thing that ever happened to this world. We are to be sources of constant good, sharing, love, and service so that the world might be blessed and some, we do not forget this, might come to faith in our Savior." And I thought that was a very convicting thing for myself, is that our good works, there is that element that it is for the world to see. It is that element that they will, they will, they should be a light to people. They should be, it shouldn't make them angry that a Christian is their neighbor. It should actually bring them peace to go, oh, I have a Christian for a neighbor. So the, the big thing I wanted to take alone, this was kind of the, the big overall theme I want you guys to remember when we talk about good works. Eternal life is a free gift of God's grace to those who trust in Jesus alone for life and salvation. It is not something we merit, either in whole or in part, by good works. 
However, at the same time, the New Testament is very clear that good works are important and necessary for us who have been saved by the free grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So I want us to understand that, that it is an important part of our walk. It is a very important part. But I'll, I'll, I'll show this, given a little bit of context in history here, how easy it is to kind of divert and how our Christian culture, our kind of church culture in North America kind of just piggybacked off works in the sense from the Catholic Church, and it kind of distorted it. So to add a little context, this chapter as we go through it, there's, the wording is very specific, and it's actually purposely used to combat the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholicism at that time, a lot of the wording here is very purposefully used. So during the Reformation, the doctrine of justification was hotly debated. What ended up coming out of that was the Reformers' view and the Catholics had very different understandings of justification. Catholics would actually say we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the Protestants vehemently combated that we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's where we all, we're all recognizable. We all know the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. That's where it comes from. It was that word, alone. It was not... Saved by, like, a Catholic would agree with that. And if you ever, if, has anyone ever seen the old uh, Martin Luther uh, video? It was like the 50s or 60s, I believe. There's this kind of this, uh, there's this clip where Martin Luther's showing one of these leaders, he's showing them Romans, and there's this little interaction that I just, it, it sums up that Reformation period when they talked about it. And this man says, Dr. Martin, if you leave a Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? And Martin Luther in the movie, whether it's true or not, but he said in the video, Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. That was the big fight between them at that time. So how do, what, what is this difference of justification? So to really, I'm going to really oversimplify this because as I started to, I, I was reading through the Council of Trent to understand it. And not only was it in Old English, but it was also in legal terminology. So it was not fun to read, <laughs> but it took me, but I, so I'm just going to very much oversimplify this. Protestants believe that justification is fully and completely done by Christ. And if you look at the, uh, the 1689 chapter on justification, this was the quote just to, to hammer it home. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. So that's what we believe is Protestants, that justification is fully done by Christ and Christ alone. A Catholic's understanding of justification is that you are justified by Christ plus your works. They have to go hand in hand. If you read through session six of the Council of Trent, which, like I said, I don't recommend it, uh, you will see, <laughs> yeah, you will see they are careful to make sure that they that you are not justified solely on works apart from Christ, but that you are also not justified solely on the imputed justification of Christ. So you're not saved by just works, and you're not saved by Christ. You're saved by both. But in my opinion, if you're saved by any element of works you would have to admit that you were saved by works. But they would say you need both. Because as I was reading through the canons, there were certain things that they said that I was like, amen, I agree with that. But then they would go off the rails. So 
Let's open up to the first chapter. Like I said, if you don't have one, I would recommend getting, these are wonderful. They're great little systematic theologies to have in your, and they're just short chapters. They're very clear, wonderful. So I'd, I'd recommend it. I did send a link to the free version on Founders website if you don't have it, but we'll start in paragraph one. Good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. So this first paragraph here actually defines good works for us. It does this by a positive claim and it does it by a negative claim. And so what I mean by that is it tells us what good works are, but it also tells us what good works aren't. Uh, so let's think of it, I, I wanted to think of examples, how many of us, and I think any one of us can think in the past five years, have you ever been in a situation where somebody tells us to do something because it's the Christian thing to do, or that we should do something because Jesus would want it this way, or if Jesus was alive today, he would be doing these things. Can anyone think of some examples in the past five years where you've dealt with this? Think of just the, you know, the momentous historical things that we just went through. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll break the ice and I'll say this one. During COVID, oh, if you really love your neighbor, you will mask up, you will close the churches, you will do this. That's, what, that's loving your neighbor. That's what Jesus wants you to do. It sounds spiritual and Christianese. What about during the Black Lives Matter movements? When it was, if you don't support this and their idea of justice, you're not a Christian. Did anyone else deal with those kind? I, I dealt with it so many times hearing these kind of things. So I think we all, and even in our, back, like I said, for the, those that come from a background of works-based salvation, you can probably think of times where you were told you have to do X, Y, or Z, or you have to go to this church, or you have to do this thing, you have to do this ritual to truly be a Christian. Has anyone else, by show of hands at all? <laughs> there we go. So, yeah, so we all have these little things that were put there. So now we have to ask the question, so what determines a good work? How are good works identified, and what is the standard by which they are defined? So this paragraph tells us that God alone defines what is good. He has revealed to, to us in it, in his word, and good works are only those that are commanded by him and in line with his character or his definition of good. And we have plenty of scripture. So the scripture references, if you look at the bottom, he says Micah 6, 8, Hebrews 13, 21, Matthew 15, 9, and Isaiah 29, 13. Um, if someone could open up to Micah 6, 8, real quick, because I would that one is a very good one that just kind of thrusts this. Oh. Yeah, as it says in Micah 6, 8, he has told you what is good. So God has told us this. And the confession points us to Matthew 15, 9, and Isaiah 29, 13 as well. Now those scriptures, those are talking about the, the, the Pharisees that for the commandments, they, they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is going into that second part of that paragraph where they say, out of blind zeal. So when it says here, uh, sorry, that works do not have this warrant that are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions are not truly good. 
So we have this idea that that's what the combat was for Matthew 15, 9, and Isaiah, that men were devising up these traditions or these other good works and claiming that it was some way meriting righteousness from God. And they were just creating it. So the opening paragraph is very clear, and it's in God's word alone, tells us what a good work is. Uh, we also need to be careful to do, uh, we also need to be careful to do good works in God's way. Sam Waldron writes this, How often Christian workers have justified prolonged absence from their families and failure to perform the most basic family or parental duties by the good work of being a missionary or being an evangelist. How often do women violate the scriptures in doing the good work of preaching or shepherding the church? So we think of those as good works, but as soon as we start to go outside our lane, whether it's even just through women that want to become preachers, being a preacher or a pat, that's a good work. But if it's not done in God's way, that's where it falters. Or that even men that somehow neglect their families, they get busy with ministry and they neglect their families, that in itself, they're doing a good thing. They're doing ministerial work. They're doing evangelism. They're doing these things, but they're abandoning their families. So we always have to kind of have this tension that we're wrestling with, that we've got to make sure we're doing a good work in God's way. And lastly, we need to also acknowledge that good intentions do not make something good as well. And when I use that term good, the, the confession itself as well will use the word good as, as kind of a synonymous term as righteousness or right. So when we use the term good for good works, think of it as like righteous works, if that makes it a little easier. But we also need to acknowledge that our good intentions don't just make it good. There's a scripture reference here, uh, but quickly, if you look at John, you don't have to turn there, it's just a quick little reference. John 16, 2, Jesus was preparing his disciples uh, for the persecution they would face, and he writes this. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So even the Pharisees at this time, to, to, to squash this, this rise of Christianity, the Christians, to squash the disciples, they think in themselves, I'm doing a service to God. I'm doing good. I'm, I am honoring God. I am making sure that heresy is being squashed. And, and we can all kind of, we can kind of, almost sympathize with that in a sense. Any one of us would want to protect from false teaching or heresy. <clears throat> Pardon me. We want to protect our children or brothers and sisters in Christ from wolves in sheep's clothing. But here Jesus is saying, this is what was in these people's hearts as they do it. And I know I've experienced many conversations with professing believers that say, God knows my heart and that I'm trying to do good or I'm trying to do my best. But here's where we would actually have to stand firm and say that type of thinking doesn't even put your feet in the proper starting blocks. It's the wrong way to think of how to do good works, how to honor God through how we live. So we've defined that good works are defined by God in his word, that he's the standard, and he's the one that dictates how we do it. So paragraph two now uh, if I was kind of give a synopsis of it, I, would, I was trying to find good words for it, but I couldn't. But I would say it's almost the benefits of good work. So why do we do these things? So I'll read paragraph two here. <clears throat> these good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good works, believers express their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, 
build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers, believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome eternal life. So we'll break this down. We're going to try and find all these little different things and kind of talk about them. So the first one, they are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so that wording of a true, their fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. This is what, what I just said. This is one of the phrases that directly combats Roman Catholicism. So just as we learned from the Council of Trent, this phrase is not according to Roman Catholicism. This statement is purposely chosen to solidify that we are opposed to the Catholic understanding of justification. So this is canon, I believe, 24. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, and this is the key part, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. So what they're saying is, if you are just saying that this, these good works are in no way meritorious, that they're just the fruits or the expressions of your faith that has been brought up in Christ, they're saying, no, you, you are not in right standing with God. So once again, the, the wording that was chosen was directly chosen to purposely say, no, we are opposed to that understanding of justification. Because like I said, you got to think, Protestants think justification is fully done in Christ. Catholics think Christ puts you on the right path, but you kind of have to do these works and do these things to keep on that path. So it's, a, it's very, very synergistic. This phrase is also important to understand because this is where it can also flirt with the idea of salvation by faith plus works, if not understood correctly. So we need to remember two scriptures importantly, Romans 3.20 and Romans 4.5. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then in Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So like I say, we have a very polar opposite view. We need to understand that we are justified 100% by faith alone. Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses will quickly point out James 2. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's actually like Hebrews says, let us labor to enter into that rest. Mm -hmm. We have to continually fight for it and contend for that rest. Mm -hmm. Because there, it's just, we're going to get destroyed if we don't continue to resort. Yes. Go back to it and be very clear about it. Yeah, absolutely. You're kind of, you're kind of flirting with paragraph three as we get there too. How we have to be diligent in this. So yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll actually talk about that. That's Philippians. Yes, I'll talk about that verse as well. But James 2 is a very, this is 
anybody that thinks of works, that they say Protestants, because that was a big combat at the time, is, oh, you Protestants don't care about works. You're not going to do good for society. You don't care about doing anything. You don't care about helping your neighbor. That was kind of the big combat thing. Uh, And James 2, like, there's some scripture in there. If you read James 2, it seems like there's this fight. So, for instance, James 2, 17 and 18. So, also faith by itself does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. And then this one, James 2, 24, is even worse. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That seems pretty crystal clear. But I, I unfortunately don't. I, I listened to a, a Theocast. I know Ryan's been showing, uh, telling about a lot about them. Theocast does a wonderful episode on James 2 and understanding the context of it. And you really have to understand the context of James 2 carefully because they will be quick to throw this out with you. If you ever do evangelism, to somebody that, like I said, Mormons for sure, faith without works is dead, it, they, they will be very quick. But you have to understand the context of what is going on. And if anyone wants to, I'll, I'll try and find the link to that because it was a very helpful episode to understand. Like I said, they, they, they explained it wonderfully, but it's unfortunately due to time. I just don't have time. But the, to, to kind of break it down just simply is that James actually agrees with us, that he actually does agree. These works, he's basically saying that How can you say you've been changed by the gospel, that you have been united to Christ, and that your faith isn't flowing out of that? This is going in line with Jesus' words that a good tree bears good fruit. That you can't just just duct tape an apple to a tree and be like, see, it's producing fruit, it's good. No, the, the life of that apple comes from the tree. It comes from the root. So James actually works, he he actually does agree with us, but like I said, if you just sit and just kind of read it very blankly without the context and understanding why James is writing what he's writing, it'll come up. And so my, that was my fear is I just want to make sure that it, that is, it is there, but James too helps us understand, but it's, but a very, very quick overview is that James is actually talking about works accompanying our faith. And as the first line of paragraph 2 says, good works are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root of our salvation. Sam Waldron, in his exposition, writes this. Our Baptist forefathers, with this assertion, make sure that we realize that the context of which we must think of the advantage of good works is one of gospel grace, not legal merit. Anytime you think of your good works that you are doing, it is not something that is bringing you merit towards God. It's not like you're chipping away as well at that debt. That debt's been paid. It is all of gospel grace. They are simply the outpouring of what Christ has done in us. There's no meritorious advantage to doing good works. Uh, I believe this was also from him. Uh, This is the biblical teaching on this subject, which was held by the reformers. Justification is not based on our works. We are justified by Christ and his work alone, which we receive and rest on by faith alone. By being united to Christ through faith alone, good works will inevitably follow, because the believer in Christ has also been given the gift of the Spirit and now desires to live for and in obedience to the one who has saved him. Yes, you have a change of heart. You have this. Paul Washer has this one example that really cut me when I first heard it, and he uses this analogy that he was, if, you're, if I was speaking at a church 
And I showed up 20 minutes late and my suit's all disheveled and I come, my hair's all a mess and I go, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. And the guy said, you're 20 minutes late, where were you? He goes, well, I got a flat tire and one of the lug nuts rolled into the middle of the road and I went out in the middle of the road and I picked it up and I looked up and there was a 10-ton logging truck coming my way and he ran me over at 120 miles an hour. So I'm sorry I'm 20 minutes late. And the guy would say, no, that, that's insane. How can you have an encounter with a logging truck at 120 miles an hour and just come with a little bit dish- like that? You're either a lunatic or you're lying. And Paul Washer went on to say, then how can you say you've had an encounter with the holy and righteous God and not see something different and not be changed? And he said, already you've already made your God less powerful than a 10-ton logging truck. That really cut me hard. So that is what you have to understand, is that, that what Christ has done for you, you, you feel a joy. That's what, remember that whole thing, my, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. You, 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 start the, you start to look at the law no longer as this master, as this overbearing thing, because you've been set free from it. And now you find joy in it. You find joy in helping and blessing those, and doing good works, and honoring and obeying your Father. You find joy in it. And kind of working on that, joy, or sorry, just before, just for the agriculture lovers, Sam Waldron had a great, um, to talk about the merit um, and gospel grace idea, is we have to understand the context of where our works fit. He said, a plow is of great use in the context of a farm, but it is no use displayed in the front yard of my home in suburban Grand Rapids. Just so, good works in the gospel economy of Christ, grace, and faith are of great use but useless in the context of law and merit. So for all the farmers out there, think of it that way. Uh, the second part of this paragraph. <laughs> yeah. So the next part that he says in paragraph two, here's another thing, is it expresses our thankfulness to God. Uh, Psalm 116, 12 to 14. I'm just going to read this uh, because I just loved it. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What a wonderful expression of what God has done for the benefits of us. First uh, Peter 2.9 is also referenced. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And probably the best tangible expression I can think of where it's somebody expressing their thankfulness to God is Luke 7, uh, 36 to 50. Think of the, the lustful woman, how she comes to Christ, weeping, pouring perfume on his feet, washing, showing her thankfulness for what Christ has forgiven. That is a great, I think that is probably the best example in Scripture of the good work that she is doing is expressing her thankfulness to God and what he has done. I would say that's probably the best one. The next, uh, the next succession, this is where it kind of, I, I want to spend a little time on this as well. This one is where it can kind of get tricky. Strengthen our assurance. We need to always remember that our good works are not in any way meritorious. When it comes to this point, though, we often feel when we lack good works, we need to examine ourselves critically, but what we should be doing is casting ourselves more upon Christ. We need to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel, and then our good works flow out of that. One of the books I read said this, Good works do not strengthen assurance because they build up our merit before God. 
Rather, they strengthen assurance by making our faith more visible to ourselves, by displaying God's grace in us, by proving that Christ lives in us. Many Christians struggle with assurance because they allow their faith to be weak and inactive. Often the way to deal with lack of assurance is not by more self-examination, but by exercising faith. Go to Christ, rest your soul in his hands, then in gratitude, put your faith to work. And then this, once again, kind of a little dagger to myself, maybe the problem you have with assurance is that you're so into yourself that you never have the time to do anything for anybody else. So there, we always got to be careful when it comes to self-examining ourselves. Sometimes we can be quite hypercritical. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11 says this, uh, kind of in line with what I just read. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with knowledge, and self, or sorry, so, virtue with knowledge, <clears throat> knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So even right there, Peter's saying, if you, if you don't have this idea of this care and love for your fellow brothers in Christ, it's, be, it's not because you're like, oh, I'm just not doing good enough. It's because you've forgotten what Christ has done for you, that you were cleansed from your former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And kind of piggybacking off that with the confession, the next point they bring up is that it builds up our brothers and our sisters. Matthew 5.16, I mean, this one, it, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory, but fi- Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think, I think many of us can think of times where you hear about somebody else doing ministry or doing something, and it just, it blesses your heart. You hear about it, and it can be something simple. It's, you can be talking to, um, like sometimes I'll just hear, about, oh, I, I went and dropped off a meal for such and such family, or I went and visited with this person because they seemed like they were struggling. And it just, it brings you joy, and it just encourages you. It, it, can, it can even lead you to go, you know what, I want to do that too. I want to go and volunteer at the soup kitchen. I want to go and give a meal to the family. I want to go and visit somebody and just meet for coffee and see how they're doing. And I want it, it's that it's an encouragement to each other. And I think sometimes we can, we, can, we can internally sometimes get jealous and be like, oh, like they're doing that and I'm not doing anything. But, but be encouraged. When you hear about other people succeeding or going forward, it should bless us. It should, rich, it should enrich us to know that the gospel is going forward and the kingdom is growing. The next parts are kind of uh, for, the, for the unsaved, unregenerate, I would say, but they adorn the profession of the gospel. And this one kind of goes along as well with the previous one. When we use the word adorn, we mean that we make the gospel more, appear more attractive and desirable. Our good works are going to show the beauty of the gospel. The good news will be shown in good works. Unfortunately, you see this, I mean, this is where it comes from the heart, because you think of, for instance, I, I mean, I live in Sterling, so we're in the heart of Mormon community out there, and, but they do a lot of things. They're 
blindly going around doing a lot of things, thinking that it's building up this righteousness for themselves. But it's not, it's not built on a heart, it's not out of exuberant joy to do these things. It's, I have to do this. I gotta, I gotta earn righteousness and favor with God. And it loses its, it kind of loses its flavor after that. But with us, if you're saying, I'm doing this because Jesus Christ saved me and I can't wait to bless you. That really makes the gospel seem a lot better than, oh, here's the gospel, now start doing a bunch of things. But it's, no, when you get transformed by the gospel, when you get transformed by the Holy Spirit, you, you can't help but not do these things, and you do it out of joy. And this also, this also goes into the next point of, it stops the mouths of opponents. So I'm just going to read a couple scriptures. 1 Timothy 6.1 let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And then 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence all the ignorance of foolish people. There was a, there was a quote I found somewhere, and it was a historian actually talking about the Christians of the early church. Because at that time, people were saying, oh, the Christians are just this, this, this. And it, was, it wasn't a Christian historian, and I, couldn't, I tried to find it again, and I don't know where I read it. But basically, it was this historian writing saying, man, these Christians are doing this. They're feeding the widows. They're taking care of orphans. They're doing this. And he just went on. He's like, they're not lustful. They're not that. And he just went on and just said, like, they're, like yeah, they're real benefits to society. And I think that, like, they just, this guy could not actually say a bad thing about the Christians at that time. He's, they're actually doing a lot of good in our society. And I think that was just a wonderful example. But I said, I couldn't find it again to reference it. But it was an actual old, it was a whole historian, I think, talking about the early church. And uh, lastly, the, one of the major benefits, and it's our ultimate goal in this, is it glorifies God. The good works of believers show forth God's glory. They reveal the beauty and majesty of his glorious perfections, especially the glory of his grace, which takes sinners like us and causes us to be new creations in Christ who do good works for his glory. Like I said, we're not doing good works because it's earning some kind of favor. God does not need them from us, but it's simply so that we can glorify and point to him all the more. And I think that is a wonderful Wonderful reason to do it. Yes, Nathan. Um, it brings glory to God now, but there's also a really uh, very clear focus on glorifying God on the day of visitation. Mm-hmm. And there's many references about good works, especially being laid open. Lots of things are secret and unseen and unnoticed right now. Mm-hmm. Amen. Absolutely. Nope, for sure. Um, okay. Didn't get as far as I wanted to, but we'll do, I'll try and finish off this paragraph here. Uh, the last thing that it says here 
is that it says we are God's workmanship for good works. The scripture reference for this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're, we're, we're quite all familiar with this, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good, work, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So once again, as I say, we, we, election's there and it deals with it, but God has prepared us for good works beforehand. It's also in there. We've got to deal with this. Uh, one of the reference, um, or sorry, so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome eternal life. The reference here is Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. I'll just quickly go through this example. There's, there's, once again, we've got to understand where we are on the path. This is really critical here. They are appointed way to eternal life. So our good works, they, they're an appointed way that we get to the kingdom. And we'll use Pilgrim's Progress as an example later, but for example, they are the appointed way to eternal life. They are the way, but they are not the gate. The Christian life does not begin in good works. The gospel is not start doing good things. The Christian life begins in repentance and faith. Faith must come to rest in Christ before it does good works. Repentance must turn from sin, hate, loathe, and sorrow for it before it does works fit for repentance. And notice three things here that always go together. Being set free from sin and becoming slaves of God, our conversion. We have, the, we have our fruit to holiness, our good works. And the end, everlasting life, which is our glory. So we have conversion, good works, and glory. Again, we cannot separate those three things. Remember the illustration Jesus uses on the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks of the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life. The gate and the way cannot be separated. If you were not in the narrow way that leads to life, you never entered the gate. And if you have entered the narrow gate, you will be in the narrow way. The way, the gate, and the end, eternal life, are inseparable. Good works are not the narrow gate of conversion. We enter the gate of conversion by faith in Christ's person and work alone, not by our good works. Further, we do not merit the eternal life that is at the end of the road by our good works. But good works are the appointed way upon which we arrive there. Faith in Christ entering the narrow gate, leads to good works, walking in the narrow way, which ends in eternal life. In that sense, we can even say that although good works do not save, there is no salvation where there are no good works. And if, has anyone read Pilgrim's Progress here? Oh yeah, quite a few. So uh, another way of understanding this is in Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember, uh, in one of the chapters, there was a, two men that came tumbling over the wall where Christian was walking. And they were named formalist and hypocrisy. And Christian asked them this. Why did you not enter in at the gate which stands at the beginning of the way? Do you not know that it is written that one who does not enter by the gate but climbs up some other way, that person is a thief and a robber? So we always got to get that order right. Our good works are not the gate that we enter. That is faith in Christ. As soon as you walk through that gate of faith in Christ, you're on the path of good works. And that's the way to eternal life. So that's a, I thought that was a wonderful analogy to kind of think about it. They're, 
they're, they're, like I say, you can't sit there and think that my works are meritorious and I need these, but it's the path that God has chosen for us to walk along. So I didn't get as far as I wanted to. I wanted to get through paragraph three, but we're, I'm already past my time. So um, yeah, I'll try and, try and shorten this up and get through more. Uh, but uh, Nathan, would you mind closing us in prayer?